Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, September the 13th, 2022. Unlucky for some, not for my guest today, whose book is out today, or at least I hope it's not an unlucky Tuesday for him. <laughs> he has a new memoir, a book uh, about his own life, uh, a rags to riches story, or at least symbolically so, a very American story. And this is a familiar theme uh, in the show. We've been doing a number of these kinds of stories and books based on these stories recently. We did one last week with Michael Saman, uh, one of Silicon Valley's leading programmers, uh, a, a gay son of a first-generation Peruvian immigrant family. At one point, as an 11-year-old, he had to support his own parents who lost their jobs. His book, App Kid, uh, How a Child of Immigrants che Grabbed a Piece of the American Dream. This idea of grabbing a piece of the American Dream is very... Horatio Algaresque, I'm not sure if everyone would agree. Um, Erica Sanchez, another American immigrant, um, has a different kind of narrative memoir, Crying in the Bathroom, a memoir. In some ways, it's a, a, a polemic against the idea of conforming in America. Uh, and recently, we did another wonderful memoir, a very moving one, with Javier Zamora, uh, a young uh, uncle unaccompanied migrant from El Salvador, who has a new book out, Salito. He's become quite a star in um, amongst the, the, the poet and writing class in America. And we have another book, a very similar theme, except it's an internal one. Um, the author of this book didn't come from outside America. He came from inside. Uh, and it's a book about the journey, if that's the right word, from homelessness to home. Uh, his new book is appropriately called A Place Called Home, a memoir. Uh, the author is David Ambrose, and David is joining us from New York City, just outside Times Square, where he used to be uh, a homeless uh, a homeless member of a, a very sad family. David, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. So, David, apologize for that rather long-winded intro. I hope I didn't put you off at all. Um, do you Think of your narrative in the context of, uh, I, I, I don't suppose you've read book, the books by Samen or Sanchez or Zamora, but do you think of your narrative in a sense as a, as a migrant or an immigrant narrative of, of an American who arrives in this country and makes something of themselves? That's a beautiful frame I've not thought of before. I've thought about it very much around this idea of being unplugged. There's a story I tell begging in Grand Central and my family lived there homeless and the folks just separated in front of me and came back together behind me on a packed concourse. They didn't even look at me. And I realized it was about four that I was not part of this world. And so in some ways, uh, in your kind of narrative, I would describe that as an internal migrant. I was unplugged, invisible and had no political power. Uh, which could help my family, nor did the people around me, the thousands and thousands of us living like that, had any uh, either. So it's an interesting frame I hadn't really thought of before, but it shares very similar themes uh, with some of the folks you mentioned on the intro. 
David, your story and the book has been picked up in national media. Uh, the New York Post um, described you from homeless to high-powered exec. This businessman is the embodiment of the American dream. It has a very nice uh, picture of your body. Uh, I don't know whether they, they meant that. And then the Daily Mail, the right-wing English uh, newspaper, also picked up the story, uh, the headline, the man who spent 11 years of his life homeless details how he beat the odds to become high-level executive at Amazon. Do you like to think of yourself as the embodiment of the American dream? Um, is the press picking up the correct story here? I am very proud to be American, and I don't think in many other times in our world's history would I have survived in any other setting with the start that I had in life, I think I would be a very different statistic. Um, I, I think it's a typical um, and uh, hopeful story. And I'm sharing it not to be the one person that makes it out as some sort of lottery, but hopefully to inspire people to believe that they can help more folks like myself make it out. And I don't know that helping other people is particularly an American dream is just a human dream. We can help those that are less fortunate than us. It may not be money. It may not be becoming a foster parent, but we have the agency and the ability to do that. And I think that is a universal story of uh, hope and upward mobility and, and candidly survival. Um, I am proud of having achieved what I did, but I also recognize that I didn't get here by myself. There was both individuals and systems that lifted me and helped me climb both in equal measure somehow out of the uh, lowest level of our society. So David, tell your story, A Place Called Home, which you outline in your memoir. What's your earliest memory? Yeah, my, uh, some, my earliest memory is actually the starting chapter. My family lived in New York City 40 plus years ago, and that's where I was born into homelessness with my mom and two siblings. My mom has a ongoing and debilitating mental health uh, illness that led us to become homeless uh, before I was born. And through that early part of my life, I don't remember much, but around four, I found myself along with our family evicted from where we were living in a public space and we were wandering. And that's one of my earliest memories is wandering New York City on Christmas and we were freezing to death, quite literally. And my mom was in somewhat of a fugue state and eventually we made our way to a men's shelter. And that individual stood at the door and, and first said no and eventually let us in. I think if he had made a different decision, uh, my four-year-old self and my brother and sister, each one year older than the other, would not be alive today. Uh, that's how the book starts. That's my earliest memory. And for 11 years, my family survived homelessness in the streets of New York City, in Massachusetts, as well as upstate New York and some other places but for the most part here in the city, it was brutal. Our existence. Yeah, I mean, it's particularly um, ironic, chillingly ironic, David, that you're talking to me now from a hotel in Times Square where presumably yes. you spent some time being homeless. We've done a number of shows about New York City, some sort of dramatizing, walking around. Thomas Deja wrote a book, New York, New York, New York, a nostalgia for a different mm. kind of New York City. When you walk around Times Square now, when you're doing your press tour for the book, when you're staying uh, in nice hotels and you pass homeless people, it must be very difficult for you. 
Yeah, a lot of folks think my message is that they have to help every person they run across. That's not my message. My message is, if you can't, that individual doesn't make you feel safe. If you don't have the capacity in whatever way, money or whatever, don't. But the question is then, what can you do? And it's not ignore the situation. I'm not asking everyone to save every individual on their own. But instead of starting from a place of what can't I do, it's what can I do? And all of us have different capacities. We've figured out some of the most complicated things on earth, like our cell phones or, or the Zoom error. And yet we throw our hands up helplessly when we think about homelessness. And in particular with kids, uh, I myself understand intellectually and as a professional that you should give money to nonprofits that lift people up out of poverty. But I also was a kid begging on the streets of New York City, eating out of the trash. And if not for the occasional generosity of someone giving me a buck, I may not be sitting here talking to you. I'm very clear on what the right answer is, and I try and live that. But I do not pass homeless children if they ask. And I try and use my time where I can best be helpful with the issue of homelessness, which is in part why I wrote this book and am sharing such a vulnerable part of my heart and my soul. David, how many siblings did or do you have? It's a very interesting question. So <clears throat> I have a brother and sister from my mom. We share a mom and they are my left and my right. I'm still very much in touch with them and very close. Uh, they're both successful and have graduate degrees and healthy families. And then I have a number of foster siblings, uh, two sisters in particular that I'm very close with. And then a whole host of folks that I consider my family. As a foster kid and as a homeless kid, you begin to acquire people in your life and you kind of curate and cultivate your own family. Uh, that's very much part of my life, including one beautiful foster family that I'm still very close with today. Holly and Steve, they're in the book and they're definitely part of my family. And that's what I think is one of the fortunate parts of the way that I was brought up. Not just the pain of it, as we've talked about, but the adventure of being in this city at that time and then also the ability to shape my family and that's not atypical a lot of foster kids have to kind of assemble what will become their army their posse their family and that is a beautiful and challenging part of growing up the way i did as hillary clinton famously said it takes a village what about your mom <laughs> david david yes um how much do you know about her background of how she ended up on the streets of New York? I assume you don't know much about your father. Yeah, as far as I know, I have a different father than my siblings. As far as I know, I'm the product of a one night stand that my mom had. And I don't know anything about my father. I joined those DNA websites hoping that I'll stumble across him or his progeny. Uh, my mom's story, uh, she grew up here in New York City, Irish Catholic and uh, grew up in Queens and had a mental health issue and quickly was kind of ostracized by the family she did have, which I only discovered later. And she went through a series of relationships. Ultimately, the mental illness, people just kept pushing her aside until she ended up homeless with the, the children that were a product of those relationships, my brother and my sister and myself. Um, my mom is alive and she's doing all right. I'm one of her caregivers. I very much care for her and uh, love her deeply. The book opens with a dedication to her for teaching me to forgive and to do one impossible thing at a time. And I give full credit to her and um, uh, at the same time look very clear-eyed at her failings as a mother. But I, I understand it is the product of an illness 
um, that unfortunately has consumed her for 80 years. Um, but I love her very much. I care for her. And I think mental health care is just something we need to confront. We need to deal with uh, as a country, as a people, as a planet. Uh, folks like my family should not have been on the street. My mom should have received the help she needed. Uh, and so many kids that are growing up in the system are there because similar issues. Their parents aren't getting the help they need. And then we put the system on top of the family and, and sometimes break up that family. Uh, my mom's a remarkable person. She sounds remarkable from what you say and also from the book. Um, you say in, in, in one piece of the book that you found yourself begging on the platform of Grand Central. Um, mm -hmm. This was probably one of the low points of your experience. Uh, but your story doesn't, of course, end there. You end up going to Vassar College, one of the top <laughs> colleges, um, and then you end up at uh, UCA Law, and now you're a an executive at Amazon. How did you get from being homeless on the streets of New York, David, to going to Vassar, going to UCL Law, and then having all these amazing jobs and now working for Amazon? Uh, well, I would say I think it's super important to realize that the unique things that happen to me and my characteristics will not save kids. We need to design a very robust system. Two-thirds of kids that end up in foster care are there because of neglect, which is a euphemism for poverty. That's two-thirds of 424,000 people. We need to keep those kids with their families and decrease the need for foster care. The system um, kept me alive, and it did not uh, do what all that it might. I think if we close our eyes as individuals, we should think when we do that, would I put my kid in that system? And if not, when your eyes are closed, what do you picture? it to look like where you'd want to place your child or a loved one. Uh, how I did it was um, a series of beautiful accidents, endless grit, and a brother and a sister that kept, um, kept each other uh, aflame with something that my mom lit when we were young, which is a belief that we could have more and do better than where we were at the moment for 11 years. Um, a number of individuals came in my life, not always sustained. I sometimes think of the vision of us reaching over or, or me being a drowning victim or people in poverty and people reaching out of the lifeboat to pull us up above the water for a moment. And I gasp the air and it's like, <gasps> and then they just let go and you fall below the water again. And that kept happening. But I was very grateful for that oxygen. Ultimately, uh, I came across a beautiful foster family. They brought me in. They did a lot of work to get me going. And I just found my way forward, always with the belief that through education, I'd find my way out of the cycle of poverty that had trapped my family. Um, and that remains my belief, that education, no matter what level, vocational, two-year transfer, is something that we should require our systems provide for foster children and kids coming out of poverty. There's no reason we can't break the cycle of poverty. More kids will go to jail upon leaving foster care than will go to college. And we should not be okay with that. We need to change that. Um, so that, the that system that a, brought me up. A deeply, a deeply depressing and astonishing stat, David. Um, we've yeah. done some shows. We haven't actually done any shows on foster care focused mm -hmm. specifically on it we've done some on uh, adoption we did one with gabrielle glazer a year or two ago about american baby mm. uh shadow history of of adoption how do you compare the foster system with the adoption system could you 
conceivably have been adopted? And what, how would you explain the distinction between being fostered sure. and being adopted and, and whether one system is better yeah. than the other? Well, I think they're very beautiful complementary systems. Uh, foster children, for the most part, their parental rights have not been terminated. So they're not up for adoption. Uh, so you don't most, get ownership as a parent, quote unquote. Yeah. Did you use term, a, it's a very correct. American notion. Yeah. Very interesting you use the word ownership. In, in the United States is one of, I think, two countries that has not endorsed the UN Declaration on the Rights of the Child. And part of that is because of the way that children in our country are treated as property of the parents. So foster care and adoption have very different conceits. So foster care is in concept temporary. It's supposed to be temporary. And the goal of foster care is to reunite the child with their family. So many foster children are never going to be adopted because that's not what they're, that's not the plan. However, a percentage are available for adoption. And so many of them are older foster kids that most folks don't necessarily prioritize in their list of the way they want to build their family. They want younger. But to be clear, most foster kids are going to be in the system until they're put back with their family. And we need to make that a really great system. Those that are adopted, it's terrific. They get the permanency that they need. But foster care and adoption have different goals uh, in terms of the family unit. And that's okay for a country or any country, not just ours, to break up a family is a really profound power and we should use it very judiciously. Two thirds of the kids entering foster care are there because of neglect. That is a euphemism for poverty, which is a euphemism for racism and classism. We don't need them to be adopted. We need them to be preserved with their families and put back and to support the families. Those kids that need to have their families broken up like mine, we should consider terminating parental rights. It didn't work out with mine. So my mom never lost that ability to one day maybe get us back. However, adoption, beautiful, love it, is a complementary system and they should be linked up and we should be trying to get those kids that are available for adoption and foster care into permanent loving families. But we should not steamroll over the opportunity to reunite families when it makes sense. David, um, that chilling stat on more foster kids ending up in jail than in college. Uh, Mm-hmm. really resonates with me. You, you're very much involved with Foster Connect. How many foster kids are there currently uh, on September the 13th, 2022 in America, approximately? Today, there are four, approximately 424,000 foster children in the system. And that's... Yeah, actually, I would have guessed, mm-hmm. not that my guesses have much value, I would have guessed more. I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, if you think about 424,000, it's larger than the population of some of our states. Um, yes, however, if you also add the number of kids in poverty, like my early part of my life, it's 16% mm. of American kids live in poverty. So how many would uh, that be? So that, that's in the millions now. It's in the millions. And if, kind of another interesting fact is there are there has not been a mention of child poverty in a presidential debate since 1999. There are more foster kids and there are coal miners, but our conversation revolves around one and not the other in terms of our politics. Both deserve dialogue and public policy. However, one does not vote and has no political power. And we are not discussed the kids in poverty and the families, therefore, nor the kids that entered the system. Again, two thirds for neglect. We have created a pipeline of hopelessness 
and we have the chance to undo that. It's not some sort of weird out there system. It's ourselves. We have to care. You brought up uh, Fostermore. Fostermore is a nonprofit I created with a colleague, Jennifer. And the idea was how do we center the debate of foster care and adoption in our public dialogue, just like breast cancer? 20, 30 years ago, it was one place. Today, it's in a beautiful place where it needs to be. How do we bring hope and optimism? Yeah, but isn't and the change? reason that, David, why breast cancer now is in a better place is because a lot of well connected, powerful, wealthy people have have experienced it and that yeah you suggest that this is a, a consequence of the the disempowered you've worked you you're, you've done a lot of things you've been involved with the los angeles city planning yeah you're the president of that you've been involved with the california department of social services mm-hmm. what policy recommendations specifically would you advise on, on the on the foster front as you said you are the co-founder of uh, yeah foster more it's not going to become an issue in the 2024 election. It should do, but it, as you know, it won't because people, these these people will talk about less important things which have more political impact. Um, what would you like to see done that could be done? I think two, two things. First, for folks that are not in elected of office is for folks to care. <laughs> not everyone can foster and adopt, but all of us can care. And one of the campaigns I'm running is Donate Your Small Talk. So you, you brought up some of the, the visuals from that. The idea is instead of asking someone what they did that weekend when you get in an elevator or start a Zoom, no one actually cares. So use that time and donate it to talk about this issue. And if you don't know what to say, I have fun facts on that website, fostermore.org, or a link through my website. And fun facts, it's, it does, it's not dark and depressing. Hey, did you know Steve Jobs was adopted or Mel Monroe was a foster kid or Dr. Ruth, uh, Colin Kaepernick. Or, or Jeff Bezos, who founded the company you work for so many opportunities to shine a light on folks and there's other facts that are listed there so uh, one if you're not elected or appointed please care enough to learn something and talk about it because nothing's going to change if we don't second is the policymakers so the afterword of my book is a policy recommendation with four parts it's a love letter to a legislator out there who's reading and listening and watching hoping that they use it as a game plan. It centers foster children, social workers, and the public. For example, with foster parents, we don't have enough. And I do not condemn the folks that are engaged right now as foster parents. Bless them for opening their homes. It's the rest of us that need to come up and do more. How do we get them to do that? How do we get all of us to care and to do something? So what I recommend is let's bring in upper middle class and middle class foster parents. How do we do that? Well, what are they worried about? pension, college savings for their kids, health care. Let's make them federal employees for all of those things after good service of, let's say, five years. All of a sudden, you've incentivized one of the biggest populations in our country, the middle class, to open their home. We need thousands, not millions, of these homes. We can do that. And we could bring in folks that have never considered fostering before because they think they can't. There are simple solutions where this we is can a very actually check around this. David, it, it makes complete sense. Why wouldn't the politician not do it? It's a no-brainer, isn't it? There's so many things like that, though. And that's what I said the first part first, which is we need the public to care. They're not going to move. They're there because they are responding to their constituents. Another idea, foster children. I mentioned the statistic about emancipating to jail. It's fixable. Community colleges. Let's build a dorm at community colleges. 
about 30 of these across the country, you emancipate foster kids into a two-year, a vocational, or a transfer degree. We own the land. These are our colleges. These are our children. And all of a sudden, instead of emancipating into hopelessness, you give them a life skill, a certificate, a degree, an opportunity to transfer. And what's so terrific about these dorm idea is housing is needed by these children. When they emancipate at 18 or 21, they're not going into housing. They're becoming homeless. More kids will become homeless than go to college. From homelessness to homelessness, right? We can end that. We can end that. And so these solutions exist. We have to care enough to make sure that they're getting done. So the solutions that I have in the back of my book, there's more on my website. We know what works and we have to decide as a public that we're not okay with homeless children anymore. In a country that sent a man to the moon, there should be no homeless children. I, I believe we can do that. And I believe that 2024, we can do that. I am here. It's a ridiculous uh, lottery that I've won in, in the universe. And I believe that these things can change only if we make them change. And that's why I'm sharing my story. I want to inspire people to believe they have the agency and the ability to change things. I truly believe we can. One, um, uh, it's compelling stuff. Uh, w- one of your blurbs, you're, you're good at getting blurbs, um, said that you will fall in love with David Ambrose. He's beautifully told gut-wrenching story in his great big heart. You clearly have a great big heart. You, you worked, uh, one of the companies you work for is, the, or you work in your career is the Walt mm-hmm. Disney Company. Do you fear, David, that people will fall in love with you in this book? rather than the bigger structure issues, which aren't as sexy, which aren't as lovable. Do Americans need to stop thinking in Disney-fied terms about falling in love with remarkable individuals like you and address systemic structural problems? I think people need to feel inspired. I, I think sometimes we become overwhelmed with the sheer volume of a problem and we don't feel like we can contribute And I think what's sharing personal stories, mine, other people's, the folks you mentioned earlier, the other authors, like the author of Salito, which I've just begun. Oh, you started reading that. It's good, isn't it? It's beautiful. Uh, It's beautiful. And to even be in the same show as that individual, it's remarkable. He's Um, like you. He's a remarkable guy, too. Just by sharing our individual stories, we move people from empathy to action. Folks need to have a personal relationship to an issue. And we do. And and that's why you share stories. That's why we are a storytelling species. That's how we move things, including our own hearts. And I'm very bullish that by sharing personal stories, which my story is not a Cinderella story. My story has a lot of grit, a lot of struggle. And it turns out well, but make no mistake, there's a lot of bumps along the road. And so I think by sharing those stories, we have the ability to move policymakers and politics. I don't think it's bad that we need to be inspired to do those things. I think it's beautiful and very much the human condition. Uh, I'm guessing uh, Donald Trump didn't address this issue very much. He didn't seem to care about very much outside himself. Um, you were part of the chat. You were one of the champions of change in the Obama White House. What's Biden doing? Should he be doing more? And, and did, did Obama achieve much? Or was it like so much of the Obama administration, all talk and no action? Well, there is a, uh, I was honored to be recognized by President Obama for the work that I did and have done around foster care. There is major legislation that's occurred under every single president since Bill Clinton 
that has changed foster care and uh, the opportunities for youth like myself. Um, recently, um, when I was com- well, when I was coming up in foster care, it was very dangerous to be queer or gay, and I worked for years alongside Child Welfare League of America and Lambda Legal to change that policy, and it took decades. And it finally actually was changed under President Obama's administration that the federal government no longer allowed that to occur if they were supporting a right, you, you were, just to be clear, you were a, a, abused by a number of the families you ended up with. Is that right? Families and facilities. Yeah. And, and for that and other reasons, um, violently. And that ended under President Obama because of his administration's elected, uh, appointed individuals that made decisions to do things differently. I would also note just one of the most important pieces of legislation for foster kids was signed by President Trump. It was in an omnibus bill, and it was really the first time that we've systemically decided that we were going to use funding that we only used to be able to get when we took kids away as a state. You get reimbursed by the federal government. Now the federal government said you can use that funding to also preserve families if it makes sense. And that, while it was buried and not a very big deal to most people, is transforming foster care. It has the opportunity and capability of decriminalizing poverty for foster kids so that their families get support, not penalized for being poor. So if mom needs a job or rent or help with food, they don't lose their children automatically because they can't care for them. And then that kid gets put in foster care and ground down until they emancipate into the statistics that was signed under President Trump in a very big bill, but nonetheless, it was. So each president has contributed. I've been very bullish and optimistic that this issue is profoundly nonpartisan. It has been a bipartisan issue for as long as I've been advocating, and I want to keep it that way. It doesn't mean everyone's great on the issue every single moment, but kids in our country, um, at least foster children, have been a nonpartisan issue. Um, and I, I work with a lot of folks on both sides of the aisle to continue to get things done for this population. It's good that it's a nonpartisan issue. One issue that's anything but nonpartisan is abortion. We did a mm-hmm. show with Dahlia Lithwick, the author of Lady Justice, Women, mm-hmm. the Law and the Battle to Save America, talking specifically about the Supreme Court's post-road decision-making. Um, has your experience as a homeless child um, and your experience in the foster system and then as an advocate for foster children. Uh, do, do you have any particular insights uh, from this on the issue of abortion or is this uh, above your pay grade? I, th- I have experienced my entire life the issues that I'm trying to focus on, children in poverty, and foster children in particular, but not exclusively, have always been in the shadow of other topics because they're related. So the meth crisis in our country, the opioid crisis has dramatically impacted the number of kids entering the foster care system. The separation of children at the border, those kids went into foster care all across the country ultimately. Um, This system is the safety net for all the other failures of our public policy for whatever reason. However, regardless of what that public policy is or where you stand on that public policy and abortion and access to and the right to included, we need a better catch net. We need a better system to handle children 
because the boat is sinking. The boat is sinking. And if we put more kids on, it's going to go faster. We need to stop bailing water and fix the darn boat. We need to lift kids and families out of poverty. Now, all of these other hot political issues interact with and impact foster care. If there are going to be more unwanted children in our country because of access issues, where are they going to go? And if we think they're going to go to this foster care system and be cared for, then we need a harder look at the system. Uh, and, and we need to fix it, not wait for somebody else to. So regardless of where you stand on the access and the right to uh, choice, you, you should care enough to want to make sure that the safety net for children, even if you think that we should have the right to abortion, which I personally do, even if you believe you should or shouldn't, you should care enough about that child that's in the system today to fix it. Uh, I think we can all agree on that. And that's where I'm very bullish on it. I want children in poverty and foster care to not be in the shadow of every controversial issue of our time, but to in and of itself be a topic that we focus on, that we care about, that we actually achieve change. And I think we can do that. Um, I have, um, I have optimism, but I'm also willing to put the work in. And again, that's why I shared this story is I want this to be the talked about topic. I want foster care and children in poverty to be the discussion and as important as all these other very controversial topics. Well, that's good stuff. Uh, a place called home, a memoir is just out today by David Ambrose. Congratulations, David, on this important book and a important story. Uh, what else are you reading? You said you're reading Salita, which is great. Uh, we'll have to get you and uh, you and Javier on the show together. maybe. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I'm sure he's listening. I would absolutely love that. I'll tell you what I'm reading right now with my public library app. I'm rereading The Alchemist. I'm reading uh, Richard Powers' new book, Bewilderment. I just started that, which yeah. is phenomenal. Is, uh, he's probably the most important American writer, I think, living writer. Ah, unbelievable. And then his book, The Understory, I finished and I immediately picked this one up. And then I've just begun uh, a new book, uh, Dirtbag Massachusetts, which is a memoir of an individual from Massachusetts. I like to get a few books going at once. 